Listener Production. Lisa Nichols is one of the world's greatest motivational speakers and humanitarians whose global platform has reached nearly 80 million people. She is one of our wisest voices on personal evolution and the spiritual aspect of healing. Lisa says you are the designer of your destiny. You are the author of your story. In the conversation that follows, Lisa and I talk about the dark days of her struggling as a single mum, the importance of service and why dreaming big is key. When you break the dream down to the strategy, now the dream has access to become reality. I'll say that again. When you break the dream down to the strategy, Now the dream has access and a vehicle to become your reality. I'm Sarah Grimberg and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life and hopefully yours too. Lisa Nichols is a New York Times best-selling author of seven books, including Abundance Now and No Matter What. In this episode, you will learn a clear and practical blueprint for creating an abundant life and personal success. Lisa, you're one of the biggest motivational speakers in the world But it wasn't always like that. How was your upbringing and and how did you navigate being a single mother? Hmm. First of all, I have to tell you that I hear you say I'm one of the biggest motivational speakers in the world. And, And while I'm aware of that reference to me, it still takes a little bit of my breath away because I don't just see who I am today. I remember every part of the journey. Um, um, I've always had a light in me, um, but I was just afraid to show it for so long. Uh, I was afraid that my light would interrupt someone else's or it would frustrate someone or it would, I was told early ages, be quiet. You take up too much oxygen in the room. Um, Let other people shine. And I, I buried my light. And I think one of the hardest things in my life to do was to live with my light inside of me. I felt like I was failing anyone whose path I crossed. In 1994, um, I had my beautiful son. And eight months later, I was so broke that I didn't have money to put pampers on him. And it just came from a series of shrinking and shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. And, you know, they have this, they used to have this game called shrink to fit where you would take this plastic and you would dip it in water or whatever you would do with it. And it would shrink. Um, and I felt like that's what I would do. And in 1990, 1995, eight months after my son was born, I felt like I hit a wall that just reflected how much I had shrunk. I had to wrap my son Jelani in a towel for two days and I was embarrassed and I was ashamed and I was angry. And I think I was all of that at myself 
because I knew I had a light in me. I knew I didn't know what to do with it. Um, but I always say sometimes we want, I want to get off by saying, I don't know something. It wasn't that I didn't know what to do with my life, though I could say that and someone would let me off the hook. I, I, I was afraid to let my light out. So whether I knew what to do with it or not, it wasn't the lack of clarity. It was the lack of courage. On the second day of my son being wrapped in yet another towel, I just kept changing the towels. I remember looking down at him and putting my hand on his, on his stomach. And I said, Jelani, mommy will never be this broke or broken again. And the key word was broken. And I didn't even look broken, you know, <laughs> like on the outside, it all looked good. People were admiring me and they were, you know, giving me accolades. And I always heard you have so much potential and, and, um, and so I, I began this quest to just find me. I didn't discover transformation because I wanted to transform the world. I'm, I'm going to be quite honest with you, Sarah. That wasn't the case. I, I'm not who I am today in all the demand that I am today or all of the uh, ideal contribution that I give today because I started saying, I want to be that person that contributes that much. I'm not going to lie to you and say that was the case. I started this journey because I needed to put on my own oxygen mask. I just needed to find my own breath. I needed to feel as if I wasn't suffocating in my own lack of belief. And, and, and I became a wounded healer. I read and I'm not even, I wasn't even a good reader. I'm a better reader now, but I'm, I'm, I found out in my, I struggled all through school. Um, uh, the last English class I took, I got a fail. The last speech class I took, I got a D minus. And it wasn't until I was in my mid twenties that I found out that I'm functionally dyslexic, which explains so much on why it took so long for me to finish a book. So I, when I got tired, I just got tired. I got tired of being broken. I got tired of being frustrated. I got tired of seeing, seeing glimpse of my, glimpses of my greatness, like fleeting. I would, I would see something like in my peripheral vision and I go, what was that? And it was, oh, that was my greatness. <laughs> I'd see something else, what was that? That was my greatness. I'd be in a moment, Sarah, and, and, and she'd pop out. And then as fast as that moment came, she'd retreat again. And I was like, well, what was that? Someone would call me to lead an event and last minute or, or, or the MC didn't show up, right? And I'd jump in and I'd shine and then I'd go back. And so I just, I got tired of squeezing my, squeezing my 20 foot of possibility inside 12 inches of afraid. Why do you think it is that people, other people, tried to dull you down when you were growing up? What is it about human nature that, that allows people to think that that's okay? Um, I, I don't think that they think it's okay. I think that they just think it's not wrong. Mm. <laughs> I think that's very different. I think that people need you to fit inside their limiting beliefs. Because if you don't fit, Sarah, inside their limiting beliefs, then they just realize their beliefs are limiting. 
that if you tell me that this 16 foot ceiling is not the ceiling, it's just my ceiling, <laughs> then I have to realize that there's a 40 foot ceiling out there and I'm playing at 16 feet. I don't want to know that. So I'm going to ask you, please stay at 15 or below. Right. And yes. so people need you to show up the way they see life so that you don't make their vision wrong. And I don't think it's them having the gall to do that. I think it's that they're living, living inside the limits of such thinking. Um, and when you are a unicorn, which are probably the people who are here, and when you are a change agent, and when you are a gladiator, you have to get used to having moments where you can only walk by yourself. Mm -hmm. There are times where you walk with other gladiators, you walk with other unicorns, and then there are times in between the connections where you're gonna walk by yourself. And I didn't realize that for a long time. So I was trying to drag everybody with me. I, when I woke up, I was trying to wake up everybody <laughs> in my family. And you know what I'm talking I, about? I tried to do the same thing. It's not good sometimes. <laughs> Listen, let me tell you something. Do yourself a favor and retire from the converting business. Mm. Because one, it disrespects and dishonors people where they are. Yes. And everyone has their cycle of evolution. We're all evolving. We're all growing. The best thing you can do is do you, mm. be you. Because if you don't do you, you won't be done. My yes. Dr. Reverend Michael Beckwith said it so beautifully the first time I heard that, that you have one job to do you. Like, and no one can do you like you. You are an unrepeatable miracle. And if you don't do you, you won't be done. You don't get to go back and go, oh, hold on, stop. I didn't do me. Let me do me. You know, <laughs> let me do me back then again. No, do you every chance you get. And it took a long time, Sarah, for me to first even understand who I was in order for me to do me. Am I the imprint of my father and my mother? Am I the imprint of my culture? Am I the imprint of Christianity? Am I the imprint of femininity? Who am I? Who am I as a woman of God, a woman of color of God, a woman of color of God from Los Angeles? Who am I? That's a journey of discovery. And so often we're so committed to being liked or loved or adorned or appreciated that we begin to do a carbon, a poor carbon copy of the best version of someone else mm. and, and, and instead of doing the original of ourselves. How did you find your own feet, Lisa? Like, you know, you obviously read all of those amazing self-improvement books and learned all these other amazing things, but how did you find your inner <sighs> Lisa Nichols? Um, I, you know, I hear about transformation and everyone makes it when I hear people talk about like it's like this sexy, amazing, like trip on the water or <laughs> like it wasn't like that for me. Like I spent a lot of time in the mirror. I spent time finding things to appreciate Lisa for like, Lisa, I'm proud of you for getting out of bed today. Lisa, I'm proud. Mine was a crawl. It didn't start as a sore. It started as a crawl. And then I turn my crawl into a walk and my walk into a run and then my run into a sore. But it, it started with me just being willing to even see me, Sarah. Like I could be around everyone and I can glance at me. But there's a, a, a clear distinction between being with yourself and seeing yourself. 
and truly being with you at a cellular level. And so I started with the mirror work. I started getting comfortable being in my own presence. Mm. I've always, I believe, I hope, knock on wood, I was always good company for people. I was always entertaining. I was always fun. I always made you laugh. But I I needed to learn what was it like to be my own company, Mm. to keep my own self, to have the capacity to hold Lisa. And so I started in the mirror and I started with three sentences. And I can tell you this as if it were yesterday, when in fact it was 1997. I know exactly when it was because it was the beginning of the journey back to me. It was the beginning of understanding and introducing myself to me. I had been many things in high school. I was the track. Ca- I was the captain of the track team. I was the editor of yearbook. I was the head of cheerleading. You know, when I got to college, I led things in college. When I got to careers, I was always leading something, but I needed to lead the parade back to me. First three sentences I said to Lisa, Lisa, I'm proud that you. And I found seven different things to be proud of myself for, Sarah. I'm proud that you got out of bed today. I'm proud that you recognize that you need help. I'm proud that you asked your mother, can she take you to the doctor Mm because you think that you're sad. I'm I'm proud that you got out of that toxic relationship. I just began to celebrate me. It was foreign. It was foreign. I hadn't done it before. I I, I wasn't even comfortable with other people celebrating me because I was under, I was so under celebrated. And the second sentence was the hardest. And this one hit me in the gut, Sarah. And I cried and I spoke in audible words. I said, Lisa, I forgive you for. Mm, That's powerful. And I began to cut the shackles to blame, shame, guilt, and regret. And I forgave myself for things I did when I was 16. Mm. I went back in my own history and I cleaned up my own debris of blame, shame, guilt, and regret. And the last sentence was, I said, Lisa, I commit to you that. See, Sarah, I had mastered making commitments to other people and keeping my commitments, but I, I had never made a bold commitment to myself. And so I did the three things that I was lacking. I celebrated me, I forgave me, and I made commitments to myself. And I did it every day, Sarah, every day, every morning for six months straight. And then what did you see? I saw a caterpillar in the chrysalis. But I knew that even in the cocoon, that I was a butterfly in formation. I gave myself permission. Excuse me. I gave myself permission to fly with bruises. Mm. It's so powerful because, you know, we are all so wounded. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, it doesn't matter what background you come from, doesn't matter how you were brought up, obviously all our conditions are different, but we all walk with wounds. And for you to be able to say this and and to, to be able to transform in the way that you have is so unbelievably powerful. Man, it talks about the power of the human spirit. Mm. When I found out, when I, when I subscribed to the fact and got clear that 
the human spirit, my human spirit, my human spirit is unbreakable. My human spirit isn't keeping notes. It isn't checking on the circumstances around me to have circumstantial faith based on the circumstance, based on the environment. I'll have faith. I'll have belief. My human spirit isn't waiting to check the climate of social justice or to check the political climate or to check the health climate. My human spirit is saying, I am here to rise and to serve. When I got that, when I got that, I didn't have to check the temperature to see if I could be a change agent. I didn't have to check the climate to see if I could be a unicorn. I didn't have to check the, the, the news to see if I could be brilliant or effective, that I didn't have to check anything, that I simply needed to make the decision to today climb through my healing, climb through my healing, allow my healing to come on this journey with me to be the wounded healer myself, mm. to allow my imperfection to touch someone else's imperfection and to allow us to have a perfect connection. When I figured that out, when I figured out that I could be a door of the explorer still on my journey of discovery while being of great contribution to someone, oh, when I figured out that it wasn't my perfection and getting it right that made me so attractive, it was in my constant commitment to touch the next best version of myself that made me so attractive. When I figured that out, and when I stopped keeping score of why I couldn't do it, there's always a really long list of why you think you can't do that next big thing. Mm. There's always there's always a long list of why you can discount or disqualify yourself. But all you need is one reason why. One reason why you want to do it. One reason why you got to do it. So I didn't try to measure the list. Here are all the reasons why I can't do it. And I didn't try to match that with the same number of reasons why I didn't. I never had the same amount of, of, of powerful reinforcement as I had negative talk. I just need one good reason, just one good reason to get up. It's just, it's, I mean, it's an amazing, amazing story. How, though, did you manage to get out of that scarcity mindset into such an abundant mindset that you have today? Mm -hmm. I learned early on, Sarah, that wherever my mind was, my lifestyle was going to follow. Mm. That you can change my home, you can change my car, you can change my bank account balance. If my mindset is the same, everything will recalibrate back to where I'm thinking. I will sabotage the car, I will run down the house, and I will spend all the money until I recalibrate back at zero, if that's where my mindset is. And so to answer your question, I begin to change my mental zip code. I changed my mental zip code so that everything else had to follow. Because when your mindset changes, everything has to mm. follow. Everything has to fall in order. And so um, I said early, I said earlier that I'm functionally dyslexic. It would take me about three months to finish a book because I read, I read, I, I read faster now, but I don't, still don't read super fast. Yes. But I read a lot slower than this was in my 20s. Yeah. <clears throat> And I picked up a book and I read the book. It took me about four and a half months to finish the book. Um, 
And then I read it again. And every time I read the book, I read the book six times. Every time I read the book, I used a different highlighter. And this man had a thinking about abundance and prosperity. And it was like, no habla espanol. <laughs> like, I was like, what is he talking about? I don't think I'd ever heard the word abundance yes. until, I, until I was like 26. I was like, what does that mean? And so I kept reading and kept reading it. And I would go to the dictionary and I would try to figure out this word. And what does this word mean? And so I just began to, and, and it wasn't pretty. <laughs> Sarah, it wasn't, it wasn't pretty. <laughs> You know, if I, I, I was, it was, I'm a, I used to call myself a slow, slow learner. And now I call myself a thorough learner. And so I would just sit and, and I realized that there was this world out there. And so I began to read each book four times. Every book I read, I still do that today. I can still show you books I read four times so that I make sure I could get as much as I can out of the book because I know I missed something the first, second and third time. And then I began to do this. I learned when I was 21, a minister um, at a spiritual center that I went to, she said, sweetheart, don't be so rushed to, um, to learn the, to, to memorize the entire spiritual uh, journal that you're yes. reading. We're reading a spiritual book. She said, people like to remember the whole book, memorize it and quote it. So they show, they show up in sound intelligent. She said, if you want your life to change, Lisa, Read one verse, don't read another one, until you learn to live that verse. Wow. Read it, learn to live it, then go on to the next. Mm. In your lifetime, if you get through 12 verses, you've done an amazing job. And so all of a sudden I had this spaciousness to learn, then apply. And so there was an expectation, learn, then apply. You have to earn the right to collect more information by applying the information you've already read and collected. So that was my mindset, Sarah. I was like, oh, I got to apply it. I wouldn't even brag about reading a book if I wasn't applying. I'm like, I'm not applying that book. I'm not going to tell people. Well, that's it. You know, people love yeah. I read that book. <laughs> okay, how is it showing up in your life? Yes. That you consume this information. Hello. Yes. You know, and so that was the... I followed that path. I was 21 when she told me that. I just, I just kept doing that. How else can I apply? I didn't apply the entire book, but I would apply some key points. And I'm like, okay, I got my piece out of it. And I've always said, Sarah, I'm not, I don't walk into a room to, to meet everyone. I may touch everyone, but there's somebody here that I'm supposed to have a divine connection with. And I, I then push out this divine experience looking for the divine connection. So everyone has a, I hope a great experience, but I'm look, I'm doing that. I'm playing at that level for the divine connection that mm. I came for. Does that make sense? Yes. So I read the books waiting for the divine content that was, that literally the author wrote for me and I'm going to live it out as if I learned it once I did. And what were the key things that you learned that you used in your everyday Oh, I love it. I love this question. I love this question. I love this question. So number one, the author, I'm going to tell you several things because I've been living it. And mind you, I read this book when I was 25. So to show you that I'm living it because yes. I'm a little bit away from 25 <laughs> right now. Right. So one of the things that was in the book was the author had me close my eyes 
and visualize that I walked into a, a parlor, a, a, a building, and I walked past familiar faces down the center aisle. And when I got to the front of the stage, I walked up on this podium platform and on this platform was a casket. And when I looked in the casket, it was me. Wow. This was my funeral three years from the day I was reading this verse. And he said, there are four people to speak at your funeral. There's a family member, there's a friend, there's a colleague, and there's someone from the community. What will they say about you? What kind of friend were you? What kind of sister were you? What kind of daughter were you? What kind of neighbor were you? What was your contribution to the planet? What was your legacy? Now that you're gone, what did you leave this world? And how did you make it a better place while you were here? This book killed me off. Like literally the book killed me off. And I'm 25. And when I read this piece, Sarah, I'm in Spokane, Washington, and I'm on a business trip and I'm praying that my plane doesn't crash on the way home because I realized I got work to do. I got work to do because I knew that I'd be remembered as a nice person. But I wanted to be remembered as someone who gave great contribution to the planet mm. and made people want to be a better person because they crossed my path. And so it put me on this, like literally, it put me on this, like, you got to get busy, girl, writing your legacy. So literally, this book talked about you're not writing your life story. You're writing your legacy story. Mm. What do you want your obituary to say? What do you want said at your funeral? So that was number one. Hit me right between the eyes. Boop me hard. The second thing that I learned that I begin to live is he said that most people live in their circle of concern. 80% of the world is living in their circle of concern, while 20% of the world is living in their circle of influence. And the people who are living in their circle of influence, they're the ones who are decision makers and they're leading and they're living the life they love. And you can move from spending 80% of your time in your circle of concern to spending 80% of your time in your circle of influence. And so I was fascinated by that because I was a victim to everything around me. Mm. I was a victim to my finances. I was a victim to my job. I was a victim to my neighborhood. I'm telling you the truth, Sarah, everything around me was like a hot mess. <laughs> and so I was like, whoa, I'm concerned about all this stuff, but I'm not influencing it. And so I began to, and he showed me how, you know, the red, how yeah. I feel like, I, I feel like I literally have been with this guy forever because <laughs> I've been reading this book so much, but it says, here's how you move from your circle of concern to your circle of influence. You place the things in your circle of concern that you have no or very little influence over, but you focus on your circle of influence. Mm. What can you influence? You can influence your health. You can influence your income. You can influence your relationships. You can influence your spiritual self. So just spend energy there because energy grows where energy goes. And I, I begin to do that. And over a period of time, it didn't happen overnight. I begin to feel more empowered about my life. I begin to feel more in control. Before I felt like I was driving my life from the back seat of my mm. own car. And that's where a lot of people are yes. right now, especially right now during this climate, during this time, what's going on. And slowly I felt like I slid into the passenger seat of my, my car in my life. And then slowly I slid over to the driver's seat of my life. And um, those are the two big things, the circle of influence and concern and writing my legacy. They got me running. How do we get our negative thoughts out of our head? Because, you know, you can have studied this stuff for years and always there'll be that, you know, negative thought that comes into your head. 
to really create that abundant mindset, what are the key things to get those thoughts away? Um, So first, I love this conversation. Um, I have a nonprofit called Motivating the Teen Spirit. And we, uh, we do emotional literacy for teens. And the very first exercise of our training is called negative self-talk because it's so big. It's, yeah. it's such a big thing and it's a big gift when you can manage it. So one, um, I always say that you, cannot re- you can't remove something out of your space without replacing it with something. Mm. So I call them forward moving conversations. So most of us are in static conversations. How's life? Oh, it's all right. You know, what are you doing? I'm getting by. So those are static conversations mm. versus forward-moving conversations, not Pollyanna, rooted in reality, but forward-pulling conversations. So when I tell people, let's replace your negative self-talk with powerful self-talk, then the first thing they say is, I'm not stupid. And I go, well, that's not powerful. That's a, that's not forward pulling. And they actually think that that's a powerful conversation. So to recognize, and I'm going to take you on a path here. Now I'm going to date myself. I don't know, Sarah, if you are old enough to know what I'm about to talk about, but do you remember the boom box when they had, Yes. they had two double CD players, right? Vaguely. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. Way back in the day before you had playlists, there was this thing called a boom box. And if you treat your head like it's a boom box, so you get a visual, I'm very visual. Then imagine one CD player is fully loaded and the other CD is empty. The CD that's fully loaded is your negative self-talk. And it's fully loaded because we hear so much negativity. Um, people, people have actually laid tracks on your CD. You're stupid. You're dumb. You're not smart. You can't do that. Going way back to kindergarten, way back to, you know, middle school when people are vicious, right? Or you have a limit, you have a limiting belief family member. You know, I remember when I said I want to be a speaker, I remember three people in my life said, but just went on telling me why I couldn't be a speaker. You can't be a speaker. You got a D minus in speech. You can't be a speaker. You got to fail in English. Like, so all of it's laying on this negative CD. Well, we spend our time with only this CD loaded. We've never loaded this empty CD, which is our powerful self-talk. Mm. It feels a little awkward to even try to load it. Like, well, what do you mean? And so I'm going to give you three, I'm going to give you three sentences to, to come up with. This is a great exercise. I've been doing this exercise probably now 22 years, 20. I remember when I started it. Um, and that is my negative self-talk tells me first expose the lie. Lies have power in your head when they're, when they stay in your head. Cause in there, there's nothing to refute it. Yes. There's nothing to debate it. So expose the lie. That's number one. My negative self-talk tells me. And, and, and the way I do it, I try to get everything out. I like to purge. I like to have mental detox. Mm-hmm. And so I, I just focus on the category of money. Then I focus on the category of relationships, then health, then uh, and then spirituality. So I tell all my lies. My negative self-talk tells me that money is hard to earn. My negative self-talk tells me that I'll never have long-lasting love. My negative self-talk tells me that I'll always be struggling with my weight. Whatever, whatever the lie is, expose the lie. Mm. And consider that. Say those words. I'm exposing the lie. So that your neurological mind can tell you, oh, that's a lie. Right. And be okay to say it. Don't try to keep it in. Shame 
is the hostage of transformation. Shame will hold transformation hostage. Mm. Shame will hold transformation hostage. And so get it out so you can hear it. Because sometimes you say it and all of a sudden what was big here is so small here. You're like, that is so stupid. I can't believe this. So you keep saying it. So you shrink it, shrink it, shrink it. Now, second sentence is my negative self-talk has resulted in. Sarah, here's where you have to pay the piper and say, here's how it's shown up. My negative self-talk has resulted in me not speaking my truth. My negative self-talk has resulted in me ending healthy relationships. Mm. My negative self-talk has resulted in me not letting my light shine. My negative self-talk has resulted in me gaining weight. Whatever the result is, bing, bing, it'll feel like this. Uh, 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 uh. (laughs) But it's true. And then the last sentence is, my powerful self-talk tells me. Now, Here's the deal about your powerful self-talk. Re- have a forward-moving statement. Have it, have it match your negative self-talk with only forward-moving words. The key is you say it even if you don't believe it. Yes. You say it even if you don't believe it. Because what you're doing is you're giving your mind a new something to look at. You're laying something on that other track. You're like, oh, because the track is empty. It doesn't have anything to pull from. So just lay it on the track and you'll use it when you're ready to use it. But it has to be there in order for you to use. The biggest thing I remember saying to myself, because I would always say I was ugly. I'm ugly. I was raised. I'm dark. I have full lips. I have kinky hair. I have round hips. Whatever beauty I have today, it was so ridiculed when I was Mm. a little girl. And so... My big thing was I felt ugly. I was ugly. No one my complexion ever won a beauty pageant. Like there was no examples of beauty that looked like me. And so I couldn't say my powerful self-talk couldn't say I'm beautiful. That was too much. But what I said was God made me, I'm a unique, I have a unique, unrepeatable set of beauty. No one looks like me. And I would say that all the time, Sarah, I have a unique, unrepeatable beauty. It's my unique beauty. I don't look like a supermodel, but she doesn't get to look like me. Mm. And I said it for years. I would say it crying until one day I went to say it and I didn't need to say it anymore. Wow. I'd already believed it, but it took me, that was probably about four years of just saying it so I can show up on stage. And now I look at myself on stage and I look at my confidence and my beauty, not just my wisdom, Mm. but in my beauty. And I go, wow, congratulations. It's not even for the audience. It's me, you know, and so many, so many women come to me and so many brown women come to me and go, my God, you just own that stage. Like you, you belong there. I go, I do. I do. All beauty belong there. I, this is a, I got a unique beauty. But I remember when I was first laying those new tracks, lay some new tracks, my friends, and then have them there in the wings to pull on later. It's so true what you said about actually, you know, speaking the words out loud as well. I know in my life when I've had something going on and I've been able to then talk about it with someone else out loud, as soon as you bring it up, it just sounds ridiculous. And you're like, this thing in my head that was such a big deal and that was, you know, keeping me up at night. Once I actually voice it to someone, I'm like, they don't even need to say anything back. You just realise how insignificant it is. Yeah, when you give, when you expose the lie, that's why I love calling it expose the lie. 
When you expose the lie, the lie loses immediately loses a large degree of its power. Yeah, because you exposed it. Lies are on. That's like when people are um, when people are suicidal. Suicide only has strength when it's a secret. Mm. I like so your humility, the things that you're you feel shameful about, the things that you feel powerless about, they only have power when they're a secret. It's when you become that's the power of transparency. Mm. Transparency equals freedom. And, And to recognize that you're not transparent. I don't invite you to be transparent so people can like you. I invite you to be transparent so you can liberate yourself. What other people do with your truth is really none of your business. Yes. That's what my grandma says, at least. <laughs> my grandmother says, baby, other people's perception of you ain't none of your business. Yes. What other people do with your truth is none of your business. Your job is to feel liberated by your truth and authenticity. I'm like, yes. Lisa, I know visualization is a big part of what you do as well. Can you take us through how you use it? Ah, oh, yes. So visualization for me um, is a juicy tool. It's like, so most people, um, most people see um, things and outcomes. I like to add to a guided visualization, the feeling. Because when a feeling occurs, you have a familiarity of a feeling and you want to get it again. When you feel a little bit of utopia, that's why we set goals. Because in those short minutes, that 10 minute or 20 minutes, your goal setting, you're seeing it. You're like, yeah, yeah. And you got all the energy that comes with seeing yourself there. Well, guided visualization is prolonging and sitting in that space. So like I just did a guided visualization um, uh, recently for a new membership uh, project that I'm doing. And I did it around um, allowing your light to shine. And I said, imagine with me, take a deep breath and imagine you walking, that you're walking down the street. And as you pass people, you could see your light jumping from you to them. And you're sharing your light. And as you walk up, you notice a a homeless man sitting on the ground and with his sign. And you stop for a moment and you stand in front of him and you want to give him your energy, your energy of possibility, healing. You want to honor him as someone's son. Honor him as someone's father. You want to expand. And all of a sudden you feel your energy expanding. You feel the hair on the back of your neck standing up. And all of a sudden you get in a closer proximity. And right as you get two steps away from him, he looks up at you. Tears fill your eyes. And somehow he can see that you can actually see him. And he's more grateful in that moment than any dime or dollar that you can put in his bucket that you see him. And you extend your arms to him and you ask the universe to allow him to borrow all of the strength that you have to spare and even some that you need. And you turn it up and you stand there with your eyes closed in front of him, sending him great energy. And his eyes are locked on yours as yours are closed. And you turn up that volume. And you open your eyes again and you look at him and you have a connection without ever saying a word so that he can 
do the things that he needs to do. You bend down and you drop some money inside the bucket. And and he literally reaches into the bucket and hands you back your money and says, no, thank you for that other gift. Keep this. You walk away recognizing that energy is powerful and energy could be shared and energy should be shared and you have enough energy for everybody. Like that, that's the kind of visualization I love to do. I love to see it. I love to touch it. I love to feel it. I love it to expand me on the inside. I love to make it make me want to look for that man when I see him on the stream. Go, this is that moment. This is that moment. Because if a visualization, I got, I got hair on the back of my neck <laughs> standing up. If a visualization is clear enough and it has enough energy in it and you can feel it, then you're not chasing a vision. Now you're chasing a familiar feeling, Sarah. Wow. And that's the art of love. If you've ever been in love or you witness love, mm-hmm. you're chasing that feeling. If you've ever had, you touched utopia, you had that kiss that made your toes curl and your eyes roll in the back of your head, or you laugh with your girlfriends until your belly ate, you remember the feeling. Mm-hmm. You can't even remember what you were laughing at. But you'll spend a lifetime chasing that kind of joy again. I like to bring that kind of palatable feeling into my guided visualizations. How has visualization improved your life? (laughs) Girl, every single thing you see in my life, I saw it first. Yeah. Every single thing. I saw it years ago. I am a chaser. I am a chaser of possibility, but I got to see it. I got to see it clearly. So I have used it. Like I drive people crazy visualizing. I'm like, and then, because I'm detailed. And then we did this. And then we did that. Like you act like it already happened. I'm like, it's my future on its way to me. That's what I believe a guided yes. visualization is your future on, on its way to you. And um, I told my son 17 years ago, I'm going to live on, I'm going to live with on white sand beach and, and clear blue waters. That right there is my front yard. Amazing. <laughs> right? and so, so like I've done it. I used to stand in the, in the bathroom. <laughs> I used to stand in my bathroom mirror and deliver the most powerful speeches. I would cry. I mean, I, and I wasn't fake crying. Like no, I was no, I telling my story yeah. and I was in it and I was, I was, you know, I was at home by myself. My son would be at school and I would just deliver. So now when I'm in front of 10,000 people or 2000 people or 200 people, I'd say I was already with you. I was here with you. I've been preparing for you. I, I know the message I came to share with you. I practiced it. I delivered it in my bathroom when Jelani was six years old. That was 20 years ago. He's 26 this year. Mm. <laughs> so it has been everything for me. Remember, I'm that little girl from South Central LA. I grew up between the Harlem Crip 30s and the Roland 60s. Those are gangs. I had three fights a week to get home from school. I had to get on government's assistance to feed my baby. I stood in the free food line. So when you ask me, how has guided visualization impacted my life? It was all I had at one time. It was all I had. Sarah, there was no physical evidence that I could be this woman. The only thing I had was my mind my mind. So I kept having to go in my mind to see myself the 
the woman I was becoming, I didn't just see, um, I, I didn't just see uh, material things because material things don't, they, they don't measure my success. They're just indicators of comfort. Mm. That's all. But I kept having to see the woman I was becoming and I kept seeing her and I kept seeing her. And some days, Sarah, I would, I would see myself somewhere. And then I'd open my eyes and I'd see where I actually was. And they were so different. Mm. And I wouldn't get, I wouldn't fall into despair. I would get my notebook out and I would write down what I saw because I didn't want to lose it. Because what I, when my eyes were open, what was around me was so screaming so loudly that I could easily lose yes. that visualization. And I would read it. I would recite it. I would, I would record it. <laughs> I would share it with people. They thought I was crazy. My like, girl, what are you talking about? I'm like, no, no, no. I'm telling you, I'm going to travel the world and I'm going to be in front of audiences that are not just all black and not just poor. I'm going to be in front of people who, who want pos- prosperity. I'm going to have prosperity myself. I, I'm like, I would just, I would, I would just go. I, I was a dreamer. And then I would get, I was crazy detailed on how to get there. What's my first step? What's my second step? What's my third step? Because Sarah, when you break the dream down to the strategy, now the dream has access to become reality. Mm. I'll say that again. When you break the dream down to the strategy, now the dream has access and a vehicle to become your reality. So I would take my dream and I would write a strategy. Now, let me just tell you, The average dream I had, I thought everything was going to always happen in 18 months. I don't know why, but everything was in 18 months. Some some things took five years, some things took 10 years. But when they happen, I go, this is what I dreamed about. This was it. This is exactly it. And so I would get in radical action. People ask, what did I do differently? How did I get so successful? And I say it's simple and it's not simple. I stay in more action than most. Yes. You know, it's so powerful you speaking about visualization. Yeah. You're yeah. talking a story that I have lived through as well. I mean, obviously our backgrounds are very different, but the times in my life, because I do visualization most mornings, and I'll visualize, I'll be crying because the emotion is so strong of something, you know, something so beautiful. Yeah. And I'll, there'll be times where I'm like sitting there and I'm like, oh my Lord. This is what I have visualized. Yeah. And yeah. you just look around and you're like, wow, this is <laughs> this is powerful stuff. Yeah, yeah. You're so busy in the creation, sometimes you don't even realize that it came to fruition. Yes. Like you're I I did a vision board in 2006, June 2006. I went to Jamaica, Montego Bay, Jamaica, and I did a vision board. And Um, within nine months and it had on it, Lisa tells all on Oprah. It had on it white sand beaches. It had on it. It had, it had that I'd earned a seven, I had a seven figure month. It had all this crazy stuff on it. 
And I hung it on my wall. And every day I go, so what are the, what are the three action steps attached to that vision board? I can, I can do a hundred things in that day, but I had to do three action steps that was directly attached to the vision board. Within eight months, the entire board had come to fruition. Within eight months, I was blown away. I'd never seen that. Wow. Like, it scared me so much. I actually didn't do another vision board for a minute. I was like, well, what else do I do? I don't know. I didn't, I didn't realize. Like it was, it was like I had this superpower that I didn't realize. <laughs> and I knew I had it, but I didn't see it so clearly like that. And so um, yeah, you know, vision plus action equals transformation, equals blow your mind, equals radical change. And why is it so important as well to be able to design a life that is way bigger than what you think you will ever achieve? <laughs> um because if it doesn't stretch you, then you're not playing big enough. Mm. Uh, if it doesn't make your knees knock and your teeth chatter, then you're 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 reducing your possibility. Um, people always ask me, Lisa, how do you get over the fear and leap? I said, you're making an assumption that I get o- I get over the fear before I leap. <laughs> you know, I've become intimately connected with that feeling of what if. Okay, what if I trust my get up muscle? I trust my reset muscle. I trust my cleanup muscle. I trust my I trust the process of, you know, making something out of nothing. I trust the process of, you know, um, uh, rejuvenating if I get depleted. I trust the process. And so I. I think we should all not be able to see the end of our own dream like we mm. need to we need to go because because if you can see the end of it, if you can see and you already know how you're going to do all of it, then it's probably not serving enough people. It's probably just serving you. And there is no long term glory in a goal that just serves you. And so um, uh, I have these big, bodacious, audacious goals. And I go, who am I to think that? And I go, well, let's just spend a lifetime trying to do it. Let's just spend a lifetime. Like, you know, nothing but good can come out of it. And so I I looked up about six years ago and all of my dreams had been surpassed. And um, I realized that I hadn't dreamt a new dream in probably about two years. And it frightened me. It frightened me because I always had a dream in my belly, always. And I was just chasing the dream, chasing the dream. Uh, whether it was to touch a million people, to travel the globe and inspire. And I looked up and I had done it all. I wanted to author one book. I authored seven. You know, I wanted to travel internationally. I've spoken on every continent that can be populated. Um, I had no means, no thought to even generate as much revenue as I've generated. That wasn't, that wasn't even, I couldn't even conceive that. And so I remember just praying in in November and saying, how do I dream again when so many dreams have been surpassed? And God spoke in my spirit and said, dream to help others' dreams come true. Mm. And then I had an endless list of people who were dreaming, trying to figure it out trying to figure out what I'd already figured out, trying to get the courage that I, that I had had to muster up. And all of a sudden I just became the 
igniter of other people's dreams. And that is so cool. It's beautiful. And why is service one of the most fruitful things that you can do? Because service is a service is a river, not a reservoir. Service always goes forward. Service is always in flow. Service is the ultimate form of contribution to humanity. Service is making your dash dance. Mm. Service says, my life here will be counted. Service is healing to the server and the person being served. Service is the greatest contribution and not service for fee. People are blown away when they when when they when they, when they find out how much of what I do I do for free, mm. and we figure out other ways to earn and sustain and grow. Um, service service is an energetic catalyst to receiving. Mm. Don't serve to receive, but it is the catalyst. If you want great things to rush to you, then be of great service just because it's the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do. Be of service with no expectation. Be of service with no quid pro quo. No. When people say, oh, do this for me and I'll do it for you. No, no, no. Can I just do it for you? Because I don't want the expectation. You know, if you want to do something for me, do it for me because you want to do it for me, not because I did something for you. Um, service is powerful. Service allows you to heal as well. Yes. I, I love saying that. Oh, it that. so does. Uh, it so does. I've never thought about it like that, but it's true. Yeah. Like uh, I always tell people, if you're going through a dark time, be of service to someone else because it'll help you get through that dark time. Mm. That's what I know. When I was in my darkest days and I felt like I, I messed up so bad, I felt like I made such big mistakes. I just turned around to grab someone who wasn't as far as I was and I began to pour into them and the the pouring in to them allowed the healing and the time to pass while doing something that was good. Beautiful. Without losing them. Yes. You know. How has all of the racial injustice recently in our world, which has obviously been there for a long time, but really flared up a lot this year. How did that affect you? And then I know that you've created something really special out of that. Sarah, I was, um, it frightened me at first. Um, It frightened me that we, that this was our norm, our unspoken norm. It frightened me that it frightened me the level of hurt that it put into the world. Mm. It frightened me that I was so angry. Didn't surprise me. (laughs) I'm a black woman with an African-American male child but I hadn't seen that kind of anger in me. And I I decided to be silent with it. And I got ridiculed for being silent because people thought that I should speak, but I knew I shouldn't speak because I need to be responsible with the authority that God has placed on my life and how I use my words. I know that many, 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 many people follow me 
And um, I, I never, ever give myself a pass to just spew anger. I don't care what the reason is. Yes. And um, my son, at the beginning of the social injustice experience with George Floyd, my son was driving 20 hours across the country. And um, I was afraid. And um, I knew that I would need to rise up and I want to rise up. I also knew I needed to find the voice that was the forward moving voice. (laughs) And um, I eventually found it. And uh, I do spoken word. I'm an undercover, underexpressed spoken word artist. And um, I asked two gentlemen, one white, one black, to do this piece with me that I, I, I did the framework for it, a short film. And um, it's beautifully disrupting. Uh, it shows where we are and it shows where we can go. Uh, it's called Let's Grow. Uh, and uh, it debuts in November. Uh, it's it will be a, a private premiere screening first, which people can register for. They can register for it, and we follow the film. It's a 15, 16 minute film, and we follow the film with the discussion with the producer, the director. Uh, I am the executive producer, and all the talent in the film, including me. And um, I feel good about it. I felt like it's allowed me to channel my my emotions Mm. and something that's forward moving and something that's productive. Um, I feel like we are making progress um, because people are willing to be mad out loud. And that's progress. Yes. I think that so many times we want to avoid discomfort and avoid disruption. And every great change in society was preceded by disruption. Every great change in society was preceded with enough people saying enough is enough. Mm. And um, this is a journey and this is a, um, a battle, not against black and white, but us against racism us against injustice. And so it's easy to mistake what the battle or who's in the battle. And to a, a low level thinking is that it's a black and white battle. High level conscious thinking is it's us against injustice. And that's my ploy to really, really make sure people get that, um, that it's um, our allies. We cannot do this. African-Americans can't do this without our white allies. And our white allies um, have a lot of power and a lot of authority to help right a wrong. Mm. And now is a great time to do it. And it's a necessary time to do it. We owe it to our children to give them a better experience 20 years from now than what we have thus far. I would not be able to be on this interview with you had someone not did something different and courageous. Beautiful, Lisa. What's the best advice that you've ever been given? I've been given so much great advice. Um, (laughs) This is going to sound crazy because it's not, it's not easily, I didn't understand it (laughs) when I first heard it. 
But my spiritual mentor said to me, wake up every day and then die to yourself. And I didn't understand it at first. And then I was on Larry King and Larry King asked a very hard question and I surrendered. I said, I would love to know that answer, but I don't know that answer. I'm learning as well. And my spiritual mentor, five years after she told me this, by the way, calls me and said, now you know what it means to die to self. So I, I, I went on to learn that she meant wake up every day and kill your ego. Mm. Wake up every day and tell your ego, you're not welcome to join me. You're going to interrupt my learning, my humility, my service. That the ego is important, the ego is important to be in the room, but the ego can never drive. It can never lead the path. Wake up every day and die to self. Wake up every day and, t- and kill your ego. Tell your ego not to come. And um, yeah, that was like, and, and I don't know how she knew what was going to happen in my future because that was in 2005, she told me that. She goes, you're going to go a lot of places. Wake up every day and die to self. Don't allow your ego to interrupt your blessings. What's your favorite prayer? Greater is he that is within than he that is in the world. I have everything I need on the inside of me. God will never leave me nor forsake me. I'm good. What is a life of greatness to you? A life that leaves people better than they were before they met you and because they met you. They dream a little bigger. They smile a little deeper. They run a little longer that because they crossed your path, something in their life has been elevated because they crossed your path and you were obedient to the calling on your life. Lisa Nichols, thank you for making a difference in so many millions of people's lives. We are so grateful. I'm grateful for you. Thank you for all that you do. I appreciate you. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind the scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, head to sarahgrimberg.com. And if you love what you heard, then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers, Matt Nikolic and Darcy Thompson. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast, download the new listener app now and listen for free. Listener.